Are you looking for a way to invest at a lower minimum and participate in more deals? Look no further than our weekly deal webinars hosted in collaboration with TribeVest. With every deal we offer, left field investors have the option to join an open tribe, allowing you to invest for as little as $10,000. No need to meet the standard $50,000 minimum. Joining an open tribe is easy. TribeVest handles all of the setup, fund collection and distribution, and even provides K-1s for tax time. All you have to do is sign up. Stay up to date with LFI by subscribing to our emails and gaining clubhouse access to join our deal webinars and open tribes. Don't miss out. Hi, this is Zach Hapstenstall, CEO and co-founder of Rise48 Equity. At Rise48, we partner with investors like you to purchase large apartment buildings that we renovate to increase the value and create a profit margin for our investors through monthly passive cash flow distributions and profits on sale. We're a vertically integrated company specializing in the Phoenix, Arizona, and Dallas, Texas markets with over 200-plus full-time W-2 employees who are focused on making sure your investment is taken care of. To learn more about Rise48 Equities Multifamily Investments, schedule a call with me at rise48equity.com backslash invest. We're all just, we were all just little automatons, you know, working for these financial institutions, right? And, and that, that theory is more of an accumulation theory. It's about accumulating that net worth, accumulate, you know, paying down your debt, right? So that, you know, which the banks love, because they love it when you pay down and put them at less risk um, versus us. And then also building up your assets and then living on less than the interest. Why? Because those companies want to keep making commissions on you, right? Those fees off of you for the entire duration of your life. So if you don't run out of money too quickly, you just got guaranteed cash flow for that company where they make money. Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Hi, I'm Dave Zuck from The Real Asset Investor, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field. I'm really excited today to have Chris Miles with us. He is a cash flow expert and the anti-financial advisor, and I love that term. Uh, through his company, Money Ripples, he works with clients to become financially independent and significantly increase their cash flow, which sounds great to me. He is also the host of the Money Ripples podcast, which is fantastic. You should give it a listen. So, Chris, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Hey, man. It's such a pleasure to be here, Jim. Yeah, I appreciate you being here. I've wanted to have you on for a while. I, I think there's we have a lot in common, as we've talked about before, both former financial advisors. But the first thing I like to do is if you can go back, how did you get into finance? How did you get into real estate? How did you become the anti-financial advisor? If you can just give us your backstory, that'd be great. Yeah, definitely not the way that people would think where you're like, you get that beautiful finance degree and you know you're become a CPA then an attorney and then you decide to become a financial advisor no nothing not cool uh, <laughs> you know I started out growing up just like I think everybody else you know very kind of middle class lower middle class family um, parents that taught me good values you know teach me that your word is your bond you do what you, you basically you live what you preach right that kind of thing and and following your passions and your dreams and uh, they taught me great values that way but when it came to money there wasn't so much of the great conversation, right? It was very much a scarcity conversation when it came to money. It was always about how we can never afford this. You know, what do you think I am? Made of money? Money doesn't grow on trees, you know? You know, <laughs> and all that kind of stuff I'd hear growing up. And so money was always a scarce topic. And, and so the only thing I was taught was from my dad, which was primarily save everything. 
just save everything you could possibly save, right? And just put it away. And so I, I you know, that's kind of what I was raised on. And of course, I saw with my dad, though, that he wasn't really living that life of freedom because I mean, he would even talk about how he, he hated his work. He was good at it, but he hated the companies he worked for. They, didn't, they wouldn't honor him as much as he would honor them. They were, he was definitely more loyal than they were to him. They would lay him off, right. things like that. And so he literally thought he would work until he died. He thought, in fact, work would probably kill him from the stress and everything else. So I didn't want that path. So I went to college. My plan was to become a business consultant, but I thought if I'm going to be a business consultant, instead of just having the MBA and the book smarts, I want real life experience. So I took a, what was supposed to be a one-year sabbatical to find some business to start up and, and gain that extra experience on my resume. Well, the first thing that came up that was intriguing to me was a financial advisor, not knowing at the time that they would take anybody that had a clean criminal record and could pass a test with 70% or higher, right? That's all they yeah, required. Yeah. You know, and you know, I mean, you took it. It's like, and of course, the test is a little bit tough because they try to trick you a lot with these double negative questions and things like that to throw you off. But for the most part, like it's it's not hard to become a financial advisor. And right. and eventually after going down that path, I realized I liked being an entrepreneur. And so I never went back to college. I stayed dropped out and started going down that path. Now, about several years in, my dad finally invited me to come sit down with him. He says, well, Chris, you're advising clients. When are you going to advise me as your father? Oh, yeah, good idea. I probably should do that, you know? And I just never thought my dad would want to listen to his son that he used to change diapers for, you know? Right, But he did. And so I sat down with him. He said, Chris, I'm 61 years old. I want to retire. What can I do? And I start to look at his situation for the first time ever in my life. I'd never known his finances. Started looking at the the 401k that he was funding and trying to put as much as he could into that and getting the match, just like you've been taught to do. He was also, he paid off his house early. He was debt-free in 18 years. Very proud that he was completely debt-free. And as I looked at his total financial situation, I said, dad, if you want to retire today, let me just level with you. You better hope you die in five years because that's how long you have before you run out of money. Right. Okay, Chris, that's not what I want to hear. And especially because, I mean, he just went through Y2K. It was just after, you know, Y2K was starting to come back again, you know? So this was like 2004, 2005 when I was meeting with him. And and he, I'm like, yeah, I mean, even though the market's recovered a little bit, still, you got you got hosed from Y2K. So you need more time or you just need to keep saving more. Okay, Chris, well, what else can I do? Is there something else I can do to retire sooner? I said, I don't have an answer for you. You did everything right. And that bugged me badly um, because I realized, wait a minute, I'm on the same path as him personally because I was just saving money like he was, trying to pack it into mutual funds, hoping to live on my 3% a year with 2 million bucks at 60,000 a year because I used to think 5,000 a month was awesome 20 years ago um, before inflation. So I was, <laughs> right. I was on that path, on that journey. And it, of course, when the student's ready, the teacher appears. Just a few weeks later, I'm talking to a guy I actually trained to be a financial advisor that left to go do real estate investing. And he's telling me how much money he and his dad are making as they're partnering on deals and stuff. And, and, and finally, he just asked me, he says, Chris, how many of your clients are truly financially free where they don't worry about money? And even when I thought about the retired ones, I realized, no, those retired guys, they're, they're still worried about having enough money or running out of money while they're still alive, living too long. So I said, none. They're all, at least none of them are really financially free from that definition where they don't worry about money. Okay, Chris, great job. How about this? How many of your clients are, not, not your clients now, how many of you guys as financial advisors are financially free, not off the commissions you're earning, but actually doing these mutual fund investments? 
And I know you're laughing right now because you already know the answer yes. to this. I'm oh, like, yeah. I had to really think about it. And there's like over 100 guys in our office. And I, I remember thinking, there's guys that have been working here since the late 1970s. This was 2005, right, at this time. Late 1970s, there's these guys been working there, and they're not financially free. So my answer was, none? I don't know. Maybe there's a guy that might be free, but I think it's zero. He said, there is your problem. And that kind of led to a conversation where I started, I popped the red pill, right? The matrix red pill. Started going down <laughs> this rabbit hole of seeing what you could do with real estate investing, alternative investments like you talk about in this podcast. And the next thing I know, uh, I, I realized that it's a whole new world, right? And I'm not saying that like Aladdin, you know, like I'm not trying to sing the whole new world here, but it was literally like this whole new world opened up to me that I never knew existed as a financial advisor, even though I'd done that for several years. And and eventually got to the point where I either had to choose integrity or choose my pocketbook, right? It was either I stay in this yeah. industry and keep getting paid, put blinders on and just do like what many of my friends have done. They're good hearted people, but they just, they can't leave the paycheck or do I leave and keep my integrity intact? And so I chose the latter. I, I kept my integrity. I said, I'm done. I'll just be a mortgage broker. I'll teach ballroom dancing on the side and I'll even do some stock coaching as well. You know, where I gotta teach people how to trade stocks and options for a company. And so I was doing that, right? But as I started to learn about this whole alternative space, you know, especially with real estate investing and what you can do and cash flow and how important passive income and cash flow is, uh, the next thing I know, later that year, I was able to retire myself in 2006. And, uh, you know, 28, almost 29 years old. And now I'm like, what am I going to do with my life? You know, now that I don't have yeah. to work. And naturally, I just love teaching. And that's where it kind of brought me back in 2007. I, was, I came out of retirement to teach people how to do just that, is get out of the rat race. And that's what I do today is really to helping people create an actual game plan to do what Rich Dad Poor Dad teaches, right? They talk about it all the time, but they never give you the how-to. That's kind of what we do. Right. And that, that, that's great. I, I love that story. And the cash flow is such an important part of it, right? And before, mm -hmm. when I was a financial advisor, and even before that, and the other careers I had prior to that, I never thought about cash flow, right? But that yeah. is all I think about now. So talk about why cash flow is so important and and what what it does for for you financially to to get that independence that, that people are seeking. Yeah, isn't that funny that in like th these companies, right? Because really when you think about financial advising, we're just we were just taught by bigger institutions like the Fidelities, the Goldman Sachs, right? The the Merrill Lynch's of the world, th those kind of companies, they're just teaching us what they want us to teach everybody else. And that's the same thing that's taught in the media. That's what Dave Ramsey's teaching. That's what Susie Orman is teaching. We, we're all just, we were all just little automatons, you know, working for <laughs> these financial institutions, right? And, and that, that theory is more of an accumulation theory. It's about accumulating that net worth, accumulating, you know, paying down your debt, right? So that, you know, which the banks love, because they love it when you pay down and put them at less risk um, versus us. And then also building up your assets and then living on less than the interest. Why? Because those companies want to keep making commissions on you, right? Those fees off of you for the entire duration of your life. So if you don't run out of money too quickly, you just got guaranteed cash flow for that company where they make money. So if you think about it, those companies actually focus on cash flow. Banks, financial institutions all love regular, stable, predictable cash flow. But we're taught take high risk, create high returns, right? We're taught, you know, you're in it for the long haul, just stay in it a little bit longer. If the market goes down, just keep working another five, 10, 15 years and you'll be fine all that stuff that we're taught. And when it all of a sudden was open to me of really what people really want, we don't want to just build up a big number and then try to live on less than the interest. That's what we were always taught as financial advisors. But really, 
anybody wants is they want they just don't want to worry about paycheck to paycheck. They don't have to worry about whether they can pay bills or not. They don't have to stress to say, you know what, that extra bill came out. Ugh, what, what do I have to take from in order to be able to make this work? Right? It's not like that. It's always about how do I have enough income coming in that I have to worry about. And when I realized that was the real key, and especially when, like for example. Um, you know, like in this accumulation theory, uh, some people talk about the 4% rule, but that was, we were questioning that even 20 years ago. And now even the big institutions are saying, no, 4% is too high. It should only be a 3% rule. Well, think about and by it. 4%, a, sorry to interrupt, but, but yeah. you mean that's the amount you can take out of your retirement accounts in retirement and make sure that you have enough money to live on in retirement. Right. Because, you know, you, okay. there's all this whole fire movement, financially independent, retire early, right? Where they say, oh, you just live on 4%. So if you save up a million bucks, you can live on 40,000 a year. But that's already been, there's been so many models that have actually debunked that myth where they're saying at most you should be pulling out 3%. If you're trying to retire early, it probably should be 2%, really. So 3%, right? To make sure that the Monte Carlo simulations work. Well, 3% <laughs> on a million bucks is 30,000 a year. Think about it. You're a millionaire. And you're living below the poverty line. You're living a broke millionaire lifestyle. For the opposite is true. Like we had a, a guy that one of our clients, we actually had him on our podcast recently named Dan. Dan had exactly a million dollars in his retirement plan. And he didn't want to live on 30,000 a year because that's what his financial advisor was saying. But instead, when we got to investing things like turnkey rentals, we had him doing some apartment syndications. You know, he ended up getting into some things like um, oil and gas type of things like mineral rights really with royalties and whatnot. Um, after all was said and done, that same million bucks was now paying him not 30000 a year, but 130000 a year. And uh, it completely changed the quality of his life, right? And that's what that cash flow passive income mentality is. I like to call it the acceleration model versus the accumulation model, right? Accumulation is like saving up, living on less than the interest. The acceleration model is you know, building that cash, but getting it to work for you, generating income each and every month, quarter, year, whatever it might be, but the cool thing is, unlike the traditional model of accumulation, you're not trying to pull off. It's kind of like they talk about the golden goose laying golden eggs. In the traditional accumulation model, you're slowly eating away at that goose until it's just skin and bones, right? Like you're pulling off you know, the principal and interest, so to speak. Where in this model, the passive income model, you're just taking the income. You're not even touching the principal. So you're letting right. that golden goose stay fat, keep laying your golden eggs for the rest of your life very different mentality. And that's actually what gave me hope, even for my own dad. It gave me hope and inspiration for him too. Yeah, and I think you nailed it. A, a couple of things like that $30,000 that some that million, that broke millionaire is using every year is taxed, right? But that 130,000 that someone else, you know, that has the real estate and all those, that's probably not being taxed or at most it's being taxed very little and you can defer and there's all kinds of legal strategies. So not only is it 130 compared to 30, it's really probably like 130 compared to 25 or something yeah. based on the tax bracket. Um, exactly. The other thing was interesting that you said is the alignment, right? When you think about how a bank or how these businesses operate, they're mm -hmm. not just hoarding assets and accumulating, right? Like you said, mm -hmm. they're looking for the cash flow. So I think that was part of my journey as well is you kind of got to flip it on its head and say, how can I operate like a bank or how yeah. can I operate like a business so that I'm getting the current benefit? Because the way I look at it, and we've talked about this, is the stock market, those kind of assets, it's speculation. You're just hoping that it, it grows and grows and that someday you can sell it to somebody else for more, but you didn't get any benefit during the hold period mm -hmm. where with real estate, you're getting benefit the whole time and then the appreciation is just kind of the gravy. 
It's true. It, it, well, all those multiple returns of real estate, it, like it's you can't compete with it because it's a asset backed investment that actually has a proven track record, much less volatile than stocks. And, and that's a crazy thing is like even the SP 500, when you look at the actual yield average over the last 30 years, when I last calculated it just recently, it's about 7.7%, not 10, not 12, 7.7 is the actual yield, right? That it averages. You know, like if you put it into a compound interest calculator, you would actually get the SP 500, right? And even yeah. worse, like you talk about people trying to diversify, right? But the SP 500, 28% of it's in seven companies. Out of the 500. So the other 493, wow. that's what's crazy. Even in 2023, you notice that finally we're starting to see the other 493 companies start to come up. The, almost the entire market was flat this year until, you know, until more recently, like in coming up in June of 2023, right? But, but the crazy thing is like the, all the stock market we've seen going up was like NVIDIA, you know, which is again, all on the AI bubble craze right now, which right. is crazy you know we've got like the amazons right we've got the you know the meta and the googles and things like that those are i mean those are big companies microsoft even right i mean those those are the big companies right there that if they happen to go down you might think oh i'm in the sp 500 fund i'm fine no if those even if anything happens to those tech companies just the tech industry itself you're watching your money tank like you you have money in the nasdaq which is not diversified so it's it's a high risk lackluster return game when you really look at the SP 500 where I can have lower risk, higher returns be in the alternative investment such as the real estate classes. Yeah, I mean, it, it's almost like talking to myself. <laughs> I mean, the, the way we're so aligned with how we, our journeys and, and how we feel about things. Can you talk about you know, asset classes, like, you know, we're, we're talking about real estate syndications. You mentioned turnkey. These are all great asset classes, but what are you investing in now? And how has that changed over say the past 18 months? Because now we're in a very turbulent, mm -hmm. uncertain time. And, you know, 18 months ago, everything was just straight up, straight up all the time. So how has your approach changed and what, and what asset classes are you looking at these days? Yeah. I mean, in some ways it's changed in some ways it hasn't, right? Because you know, one thing I learned from the last recession, when I got my butt kicked in real estate, because, you know, I had to, I got out of the rat race. That's why when, it, when you see my bio, it's like, oh, he retired twice. He was financially independent twice. Well, that's because I screwed up the first time, you know, because I was doing more flipping and things like that, like transactional real estate stuff, because that's where the big money was. But then 2007 started happening and you couldn't do that anymore. And then, of course, value started dropping. And you know, I watched myself go from millionaire to upside down millionaire not overnight, but over year, right? From really the 2007 to 2008, I was like, it was like over year, you know, just kick my trash, you know? Um, and so I learned if I, you know, if I had done it differently, focus on that cash flow, right? If I had focused on real profitable rentals, I wasn't focused on profitable rentals. I was even going negative cash flow on my rentals because I figured, oh, well, the appreciation will make up for it. So I learned never to bank on appreciation. And I would recommend that today is that don't ever try to, bank on values going up. It's also like syndications, like people are doing apartment syndications still. And, uh, and whenever someone says, oh, hey, we're gonna, in two or three years, we're gonna refinance out of this to you know, longer term notes, but now it's variable interest only notes. I'm like, don't do that. <laughs> you, know? right. I, you can't guarantee that the banks aren't gonna get more strict and even not let you refinance. What if you get stuck? Are you gonna, is that property still able to be profitable? If it is, great. But if not, you better not be banking on that being your one saving grace, your one exit strategy, because you're going to get hosed most likely in a couple of years. Um, and so my strategy, I'm, I'm, I'm 
getting more, you know, when you look at the four asset classes of paper assets, which is what every financial advisor talks about, right? Things that are more paper-based in the sense of like stocks, bonds, savings accounts, you know, even annuities, even life insurance, things like that. Those are all paper assets. You got real estate. We've got business, you know, when you like owning your own business, not like stocks again. Um, and then you've got commodities like gold and silver and oil and things like that. So I've diversified a little bit more, including I have more in paper assets. I'm building up more cash right now, um, building up that war chest for opportunities um, and also for protection too, because, you know, like my, you know, instead of just having a six month cash reserves, we now have a, over 12 months of cash reserves just that we don't invest. Not to mention I'm building up more cash just for future investments too. Um, then I also on the real estate side, I'm still buying real estate. I've got some like raw land, which I'm buying, you know, having, well, I'm having somebody else buy for me. I'm passive, right? So, yeah. you know, just like you guys are, I like to be passive too, not an active investor anymore. Um, but, you know, I have partners that are buying and selling raw land and doing that on terms. And that's been working great. Um, even turnkeys, I'm still doing a little bit on the turnkey side, even though the, the numbers, you have to be really, really, it's really hard to make some good money on those. Um, yeah, I'm looking for self-storage, although I've noticed that the numbers aren't quite there yet, but they're getting close. I think self-storage has more opportunities coming up before we start seeing more apartment syndications coming back. Apartments have just been really hard lately. Yeah. Um, other thing I'm doing too is like oil and gas. Um, so in the commodity space more, it's real estate backed in the sense that you're, they're paying you. So you, here's what's interesting with oil companies. What I didn't know is that they actually don't want to own land. <laughs> Right. You know, they just want to drill. They want to do their business. They don't have to worry about owning property. So they're not like Ray Kroc and McDonald's, right? They don't care about having the street corner prime thing. They just want to be able to drill, make profits, and then after however many years, cap them off, move on, you know? And so so really the cool thing is I'm going to investments where it's not not like drilling speculation, but more they're releasing the land from you. There's already oil there. They know it. Um, they're drilling it and they're paying you royalties on that too. So you get paid lease on the land and you're getting paid royalties as well. So I'm doing a little bit of that and, and that's been great. Even with lower oil prices lately, it's still very profitable um, where yeah. a lot of my clients, you know, like some of my clients are getting paid more than I am in some of those deals. Like one of my clients, you know, some of my clients made 35% in one project where I made like eight, you know, so not as great <laughs> on my end, but most of those right. projects, even after the first year, are usually paying at least 10, 15% typically. So um, again, past performance, not indicative of future results, all that kind of disclaimer crap. But, right. um, but that's, that's kind of what I'm looking at more now is like, I am kind of diversifying, but still I'm very real estate heavy, but diversifying among real estate too, right? I mean, I want to yeah. make sure that there's multiple classes within that real estate class. Aspen Funds has been a consistent supporter of left field investors. You may have seen Bob Frazier on an LFI webinar or at our October meetup in the left field speaking on investable megatrends for the next decade. Whether you're an accredited investor interested in mortgage note funds with a 10-year track record or other macro-driven alternative investments such as industrial, oil and gas, multifamily or retail, the Aspen Funds team is keeping track of the economic trends and co-invests on every deal right alongside you. Meanwhile, you get to do what you love and make every moment count. Download their free economic report today at aspenfunds.us slash LFI. Visor provides investors with a secure platform that displays a comprehensive view of all of their holdings on a single holistic dashboard. From real estate syndications to private equity, crypto to traditional investments with AI-driven, unbiased, honest insights to maximize return, Visor is your one place to rule them all. 
automating performance tracking, projecting future cash flow, analyzing all your financial documents, and much more in one powerful solution, making it easy to follow the money. Sign up for a free 30-day trial now at Pfizer.co. And then you mentioned you're keeping 12 months of cash. So, you know, all the talk has been inflation lately. So I think a lot of people, they're nervous to invest because of some of the things you talked about, the the uncertainty in the market. But then they're nervous to hold cash because of inflation. So where do you hold that cash? We talk a lot in our community about cash drag and where you're, you know, now you can get a bank or, you know, a money market to pay you two, three, four percent. So where are you keeping the cash? Yeah, it's interesting because, uh, you know, everybody in 2022, the whole thing was like, have no cash, right? Because you'll lose to inflation. When I started hearing the the, the mass market say that, you know, because, and you, you and I both know this, right? Like, whatever the masses say, do the opposite. So if they all say <laughs> right. real estate's bad, that's the perfect time to buy real estate. And vice versa, even though I don't like the stock market, if everybody says stock market's horrible, that's about the time you want to buy the stock market if you're going to gamble in it, right? Um, same thing with cash. When everybody's saying you cannot hold cash, you'll lose to inflation, I thought, this might be the opportunity to hold cash because what if all of a sudden banks tighten everything up and there's not cash? Because if everybody starts pulling back, there's no more quantitative easing. It's not quantitative tightening happening, right? And the, the cash is being restricted. Everybody's got their cash deployed. It's locked up in assets. They can't do anything. Now all of a sudden, if you have cash, you're king or queen if you're a woman, right? right? And right. so I started storing up more cash because I thought, well, if everybody's saying no cash, I should have cash. <laughs> and uh, and so you're right. I don't want to lose inflation. I don't want to make point nothing percent in my bank. And so give you an example. My wife wants $300,000 that we don't touch, right? Like that's just money that's there, cannot be invested. And she's saying, well, let's put it all in the bank. I said, don't you dare. Because, well, one, and this has even become now with banks failing, it's even more so popular, right? I was like, no, I don't want to make point nothing percent and then get taxed on point nothing percent. And so I earmarked 250000 that money I've built up inside my life insurance policy, my whole life insurance policy that's got cash value. I build it up there. I got a quarter million there and only 50000 with the bank. And the cool thing is that not only is it tax-free with my life insurance, but it's earning between, you know, even net, roughly about 5% a year, even after paying insurance costs and everything. So I'm making about 5% a year tax-free, which is definitely helping combat inflation, and I mean, that means I'm making, you know, think of it, 250000 that's not making, say, 0.1% of my local credit union, right? I mean, really, I mean, 250000 would make 250 bucks a year in my credit union. But now that <laughs> 250000 makes 12500 tax-free versus 250 right. bucks I get taxed on at the credit union, right? So um, I make more money. I still can hedge against inflation, but I'm still liquid because I can still access that money whenever I need it. But yes, I still use banks, but it's just for like the quick, I need to walk in today, pull money out type of stuff. Right. Well, let's let's talk about the life insurance, right? Because that that is a sometimes controversial topic. It's become less so to me because I'm I'm confident it's it's a good way to go in the right strategy. But you know, if you Google it, you're going to find out how terrible and scary it is, and it's just a scam, uh-huh. um, which is clearly not the case. But that's what you will find. So, yeah. can you talk? about why life insurance, this with the whole life insurance and, and the kind of creating that big bucket of cash that you can use, why is that a valid strategy? How does it help your other investments? Not just the 250 you're holding back, but you can use that arbitrage and other things. So can you talk a little bit about how you use life insurance and why it's such a powerful strategy? 
Yeah. I mean, you talk about, you're right. When you look it up, you try to even look up infinite banking. You try to look at it and you'll have like Dave Ramsey's video pop up saying like infinite banking is a scam and all that kind of stuff. Right. And to some level, I kind of agree with them. Um, even though I don't usually agree with Dave Ramsey, I'm kind of against a lot of the things <laughs> he teaches other than budgeting and stuff like that. But, right. but it's true because not all infinite banking is the same. Even when people speak infinite banking, like the traditional way is, is that you, you, Here's the deal. Okay, so there's term insurance. We all know that about death insurance, which is term insurance, right? You have to die to get paid. Whole life is different. It does have a death benefit, but it also has this tax-free savings account called cash value. And this tax-free savings account can build up and grow. The problem is, and this is the, what, where all the critique and stuff comes from, is that the traditional whole life policy, it's front-loaded with its expenses. So where term insurance gets more expensive over time, whole life insurance gets cheaper over time. But you have to have this big, you know, usually a bigger premium up front that you're paying and you pay it supposedly your whole life, which is why they call it whole life insurance. Well, in those first two years, and this is what happened to me. You know, when I started, I popped the red pill, started to learn about real estate. Everybody was talking about infinite banking and all these investors were telling me to do it. Well, I met with a guy that did it. Now, of course, I was a financial advisor. I had never heard of it before. And the only thing I told about whole life was that it sucks. It only pays one or 2% a year. <laughs> why would you do it? Well, right. Why well, I eventually started to buy, you know, buy into this whole concept that, yeah, after five, 10, 15 years, you'll have enough to buy a car and you can pay yourself back. All those kind of half truths that they tell you, right? Well, that was sounded great. I bought the policy, but as you had just heard me talk about 2008, I was already in the whole 15,000 a month. I couldn't afford to pay the premiums. And so I said, Hey, can I stop paying these premiums? I'm paying a thousand bucks a month. I'd already paid 25 grand to that point. And they said, no, because you have no cash in here to make the premiums for you. So I lost the policy. It became the most expensive, crappiest term policy I've ever bought. <laughs> that was doing the traditional way of whole life. You go to your state farm or your New York life agent, that's typically what they're going to show you, right? Is that kind of thing. You know, Jake's state farm is going to screw it up for you. That's what I'm saying. Him and his khakis and all. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyways, I, I remember asking him up front, this guy, I said, can I overfund this? Can I get more cash in from day one? He said, no. I found out later after I lost the policy, as I started to really research and dig in because I was pretty pissed that I lost it, what I found out is that he lied. He completely lied. Now, it was a half-truth, I should say, So, that, which is the best lies, right? Because he right. did set it up to where you had to pay that premium, that $1,000 a month. I had to pay it every single month. If I didn't, I lost the policy, especially if it's in the first two or three years. But he could have designed it better where there was cash from day one, and he didn't. So I, I remember I confronted him. I got in his office, had this two-hour debate with him. Finally, after two hours, he finally just said, Chris, I set it up this way because I couldn't afford to cut my commissions. And I said, that's exactly why you'll never get another referral from me. And he didn't. And now he's not even in the business anymore. He actually got out of the business eventually. But it kind of put me on a crusade a little bit because I'm like, you could do it. Because I think like an investor, first and foremost, I was like, can this actually work? Or is this just a bunch of hyped up crap? Well, I found out you could. You could actually minimize the cost to where like in the first year, instead of having $0 in the first year, 80, you know, the most expensive year is that first year, I could actually have it to where you get 80% of your money back in that first year. So if you put in $10,000, you have 8,000. In fact, I just had a guy that was a real estate investor that came to me and he said, yeah, I'm working with this other infinite banker and I'm so excited because I'm putting in 10,000, I'll have $6,900 in, in the first year. And I said, that's awesome. You look like you're young, what, about 30? Yeah, I'm in my early 30s. Sweet. Um, you should have 8,000, not 6,900. I was like, we actually just saved you 1,100 bucks a year doing it this way. Yeah. Um, 
Now, there's a few reasons for this. One is either one, they, they, it's because they don't want to cut their commissions, right? Just like that other guy did. They know how to do it, but they don't want to cut their commissions. Or two, they have no clue how to do it because insurance companies really don't teach you how to manipulate the system. Um, so if you do it yes. right, and that's the key thing I'm trying to say, it's not just infinite banking. It's what I refer to as max ROI infinite banking, or we like to, you know, kind of joke about it. It's like no BS. Like you're not going to BS you around with all this stuff. If you do it right, you can actually get it to where you have cash. In fact, you'll have as much cash as you paid in by the fifth year. So it's almost like becomes free insurance. Even by the third year onward, there's like zero net cost. It's actually growing by more than what you're putting into it. And so if you design it the right way, this thing becomes more of a tax-free supercharged savings account. That's when this makes sense because it does allow you to grow your cash. Yes, it's tax-free. It grows better than point nothing percent at your bank. But the cool thing is, this is the best part, is that you can actually double dip, get your money to pay you twice because you can get a line of credit from the insurance company against it where you can take that money and invest it wherever you want. There's no restrictions. Not like 401ks and IRAs, we got to worry about, oh, we got to have you bid or not, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? Right. You don't have to worry about those extra taxes because you just invest cash. It's like a savings account that's tax-free. You can use it however you want. So if you go do real estate investing, like you were saying, with all those tax advantages, you don't lose those tax advantages like you do if you use your IRA, for example, where it just defers your taxes, but you have to get taxed down the road. You can actually use that money for whatever the heck you feel like. Um, and you can do it even within the first year when it's set up properly, you know? Um, and so, and the double dip is this. Because some people say like, wait a minute, you borrow your own money? Nope, you don't. You get a collateralized loan against the cash that's in there. So let's just say you have $100,000 right. in cash in that in that cash value account. Well, normally just like in a savings account, if you were wanting to invest that 100,000, you liquidate your savings account, invest 100,000. Yeah, you're making money, but that savings account is now down to zero, right? And you have to pay back that cash flow back. So let's just say that your cash flow is 10,000 a year. You're slowly paying it back in while you're earning point nothing percent and get taxed on point nothing percent in the, in the bank. Um, where vice versa, if I have 100,000 in my life insurance policy, I don't touch that 100,000. I get a line of credit either from a bank or from the insurance company that doesn't have any minimum monthly payments on it, which is kind of nice. I get a line of credit from them. So I'm still earning tax-free money in here, but I pay them interest that if you do it right with the way you flow in the cash flow, you pay less in interest than what you're earning in here. So you earn a net positive interest here and you still make your cash flow from your real estate or whatever investments you're doing over here too. So essentially you make money in two places at once. Um, in many cases, if you were going to earn, let's say, 10% a year on a, on a passive income opportunity, that might bump up to like 11 or 12% or more, depending on the terms and how it's working. Yeah, I, I, that, that was all fantastic. If if you're at all questioning you know, life insurance, I would say rewind and, and listen to that again, because I, I think you nailed it. Um, you know, my, my story is I, I did sell life insurance as a financial advisor, mm -hmm. and um, the first policies I sold were to myself. And had I, if I was able to fire, fire my financial advisor myself, I would have, because I structured them incorrectly, not intentionally, but as you yeah. said, I wasn't taught that there's a different way to do it. And so you, has, you have to find someone who understands understands that you're, you want to do something different. You don't want to be just the normal person who's doing this for retirement or whatever. Mm -hmm. You have a different purpose. So the agent has to be able to structure it that way. 
And you have to find an agent, as you said, who's willing to take a lower commission because that's how those those deals go. So that was an excellent uh, explanation of that. We are running short on time, but I cannot get out of here without asking you um, a question about uh, sponsors for syndications and how you vet them because that is one of the Mm -hmm. most important things as a syndication investor is finding the right operators. And it's always a challenge. It's one of the biggest things we talk about here at Left Field Investors is how do you find quality operators? So I know we're kind of running on the on the end of time, but yeah. can you kind of just give us a little bit of overview on, on some tips and tricks that you use to find quality operators? Yeah, you know, the best, it's, it's tough. I mean, because even if you find a good quality operator, it doesn't mean that they're infallible, right? It still doesn't mean that you won't have a deal go south every once in a while, but it does, it does help to find the right person. So I, the best way to do that is I like to look for someone who's been through a full market cycle, someone who's actually been through like a 2008 type of crash and come out of it again. Even if they got their butts kicked, but they learned something from it and able to be stronger the next time so that they're more prepared today, right? Um, I like those kind of operators. I like operators that don't bounce around a lot. Like they stay in their lane and they just do what they do well at. Um, I have you know, one guy I heard that he was saying, I'm, you know, I'm, I have all these vanilla deals. I do apartment syndications, but I'm going to go to chocolate now. I'm going to start doing hotels. I'm going to start doing coffee farms or whatever else, right? Like <laughs> other things outside of that, that is his normal area of expertise. That to me is no good, right? You want somebody who's just, they, they almost know like their business, but like the back of their hand, they can almost do this in their sleep. Those are the people you want. I mean, I even interviewed a guy on my show, just like I interviewed you, right? Like I interviewed a guy on my show who said, yeah, I haven't found a good apartment deal in eight months. And he's like, I'm, I'm sorry to say that. I'm like, don't be sorry. That's awesome. That means your buy box yeah. is strict. You're not trying to break your rules. You have hard, firm rules. If it doesn't fit your buy box, then don't buy it. It doesn't mean there's not opportunities. It just means that he hasn't seen them come through his desk and he's holding true to those numbers. He's not trying to stretch it just a little bit, take a little extra risk, which might cost you more money than him. Yeah, no, that's great stuff. And um, so I I do have one last question other than Money Ripples, because that is a podcast we're already going to put in the show notes. What's a great podcast that you listen to? Oh, man, besides, you know, Left Field Investors? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well know? said. Um, you know, I mean, another podcast is not in the investing space. You know, I, I listen to Ed Milet from time to time. I'll listen to some of his episodes. I'll cherry pick some of those. It's funny because he was in the financial industry like I was. In fact, we were in the same company together. So I actually heard him 20 plus years ago. But uh, I mean, he's got some good stuff, you know, some good things on that one. So I, I, I enjoy his podcast. Awesome. And then the, the last question, um, if you can tell us about your, your book, I know you have a book out and then how, how people can get in touch with you. Yeah, you can find my book at moneyripples.com, which you can also get in touch with us there. Uh, the book's called uh, Beyond Rice and Beans, Seven Secrets to Free Up Cash Today. A little slap at Dave Ramsey there, but uh, good one if you're trying to find <laughs> money to invest, especially. Great book to use there. Excellent. And then you said moneyripples.com is the best way to connect with you. Correct. Yep. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Like I said, this was so valuable, the information that you're sharing. Um, So I recommend that if people want to learn more, they just uh, go to moneyripples.com and connect with you. But thanks a lot, Chris. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much. It's funny that it, not that it was like talking to myself, but Chris and I have so much in common. We're financial advisors who kind of found the light and and moved on to uh, to bigger and better things, at least in, in our opinion. And, and so a lot of the things we talk about are very similar, but it's it's nice to talk to somebody like that because, you know, you're sharing information, but you're also confirming that, hey, you know, we're on, we're on the right track. And a lot of things that he talked about, and one of the things that really hit me was 
His dad, you know, did everything right but could not retire. Followed the rules of Wall Street and saved in the right way and put money in the 401k and did all of this stuff. Got to age 61, was like, I'm ready to retire. And, you know, his financial advisor, who was Chris, his son at the time, um, well, still his son, but his advisor at the time, said, yeah, you, you just you just can't do it. You're not there. And how crushing that would be to have gone through and done everything you were supposed to do and get to retirement and you're like, can't do it. So that that's that's disappointing, you know, and, and it's because so many people have what, what Chris called the accumulation theory of finance, which is just accumulate assets with no regard to whether they're producing income for you. You're just hoarding assets and hoping that you can sell them to somebody else for more later on. And it just doesn't work. I mean, you can work it that way, but you're always going to have that scarcity mindset. You're always going to be afraid, oh, I'm going to live too long. I don't want to think, oh my gosh, I have to die soon because I don't have enough money. That's not the way to live. And the accumulation way is, is is that. But if you go to the cash flow method where you're just looking for cash flow, that is sustainable for your lifetime. And so I really like that. You don't want to be one of those broke millionaires that he talked about, right? And I've talked about this too before. You have a million bucks. If you're in the market, you know, you can take three or 4% out and then you're taxed on it. But if you're in real estate, you have that same million dollars, you can get seven, 8% tax-free. So which would you rather be? You don't want to be a broke millionaire, right? You want to be a cash flow millionaire or whatever you want to call it. Um, so I, I just I just love talking about that kind of stuff. And then we got it deep into the life insurance conversation. And that's also sometimes something people don't want to talk about or they don't think it's real. But the key, just like when we're talking about the operator, the sponsor, the GP, you want to find the right person that you know, like, and trust and knows what they're doing. It is the same with life insurance. You can buy a life insurance product and have it just perform horribly and not suit you and not be worth the money because it's not structured properly by someone who understands you and knows what your goals are. That was my first advisor did that to me. And sadly, that was myself. I did it to myself. But then when I set up subsequent policies, I did it the right way. I also got someone who understood that better. And now they're setting up my policies so that they are designed for what I want to use them for, which is Chris talked about, is leverage and arbitrage and using it to make more money, to earn two returns on the same dollar. You wanna talk about velocity of money. You take $1 and you're earning 5% here and 6% there. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. It's velocity of money. So definitely gonna get with Chris again, because I, we did cut it short trying to keep to the to the 30 minutes. There's so much more I could talk about with him. So we'll be hearing from him again in the next few months for sure. But that's all we have for this time. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in the left field with us today. If you are interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com and click the subscribe button to join our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you really enjoyed the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the podcast would be appreciated. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show was copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.